I'm getting lightheaded. Okay, and when did this happen? About five minutes ago. Okay, I'm getting you some help to stay on the line with me, okay? I think he got me in the liver or something. The blood is very thick. I'm going to die. No, don't say that, sir. Listen to me. Stay on the line with me, okay? Sir? Hello? Those were the last words said by Brian Sweat, who was fatally stabbed in his front yard 13 years ago in Gainesville. His killer has not been caught. That story is coming up on Sun Crime State. I'm Tony Holt, crime reporter for the Daytona Beach News Journal. Welcome to Sun Crime State, a weekly podcast that takes an in-depth look at Florida's biggest crime stories of the past and present. In this episode, I'll discuss the arrest of a Puerto Rican man in connection with the slaying of his ex-girlfriend. Her remains were discovered by a hunter in a shallow grave on November 25th, 2016, near Ormond Beach. Detectives learned that the suspect, Orlando Cruz Romero, had previously served time in Puerto Rico for a homicide there. I'll speak to two investigators familiar with the local case. Later, I'll discuss the 2005 slaying of Brian Sweat, who walked outside with a phone in his hand only to be stabbed multiple times by an unknown assailant. Sweat's murder is one of 29 cold cases being worked by the Gainesville Police Department. During that segment, you'll hear from the victim's oldest sister. You'll also hear from a pair of investigators from the Gainesville Police Department. Up next, a story about a Boca Raton murder suspect who was being held in an Irish prison. West Palm Beach authorities are trying to get him extradited, but their attempts have hit a few snags. Palm Beach Post News and Features writer Elliot Kleinberg will be my guest for that segment. I got someone who shot. That was the voice of Kim Scott, who found 25-year-old Jacob Walsh bloodied and lying on her doorstep shortly after midnight on June 7th, 2016. She called 911 and Boca Raton police responded to the apartment complex at Military Trail in Yamato Road. Here is Palm Beach Post reporter Elliot Kleinberg summing up what happened. According to Boca Raton Police, Jonah Horn and Matthew Lewis, who is from Jensen Beach in Martin County, uh, had a confrontation with this young man, Jacob Walsh, who lived in Jupiter. But the gathering was during an alleged drug deal at an apartment complex in Boca Raton. And uh, allegedly they had this struggle of some sort and uh, Jacob Walsh was killed. Walsh, who had been a soccer standout while at Jupiter High School, had started running a private line clothing company called Lost Key. Authorities told the Post that Walsh was shot during a marijuana transaction. 
Here is more from that 911 call. Scott could be heard saying she was applying towels to Walsh's wounds. You could also hear her and her fiancé panicking as Walsh appeared to lose consciousness. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Does somebody have a clean, like a towel or something? Okay. Yeah, we got towels. We got towels. Okay. Can we compress it? Don't lift them up. Don't lift. Okay, I got, I got, I got, I got towels on his wounds. Okay. I know. I know. I know. I know. Ma'am. Walsh didn't make it. In March 2017, two suspects in Walsh's shooting were identified, Matthew Lewis and Jonah Horn. Only one of them has gone before a judge on this side of the Atlantic. Matthew Lewis was captured and, uh, and in fact, recently pleaded guilty under some kind of a plea deal. He's set for sentencing in December. Uh, Horn uh, ended up in uh, Northern Ireland. They detained him on March 13, 2017, so this has been going on for a while. He's been in jail there for 15 months at the home of a woman he had met while she was working in America. And at the time, she was pregnant with uh, Horn's child, who, which since has been born. So Horn was put in a prison near Belfast, and um, there have been numerous uh, uh, hearings on the extradition. Kleinberg has reported that British diplomats might get involved in getting the 23-year-old Horn out of a North Ireland facility and in front of a Palm Beach County judge. On June 29th, a judge in Belfast ruled that she won't send Horn back to the United States until Palm Beach officials clarify what he faces if he's tried and convicted. Here again is Kleinberg. Then most recently, there was a hearing a couple of weeks ago in Belfast in which uh, letters were sent to the judge in Belfast from both the Palm Beach County Public Defender and the Palm Beach County State Attorney. The Palm Beach County Public Defender said that if he was charged, uh, if he was convicted of what would be called a life felony in the terms of the second-degree murder, the judge would have the option to sentence him to life in prison without parole. Uh, and in fact, the letter said uh, this man would die in prison. And uh, so the lawyer for Jonah Horn uh, argued that uh, unless that can be clarified, that the judge has no business sending Horn back because uh, in the courts over there, uh, she, she did not, she would not want to send him back uh, if there was a chance that he would never get out of prison. Kleinberg also told me that initially the extradition proceedings were held up based on concerns about the death penalty. A treaty was signed in 2007 that states British courts may refuse extradition unless the requesting state provides assurances that the death penalty would be taken off the table. Horn wound up being charged with second-degree murder, which precludes the death penalty. In Florida, only adult defendants convicted of first-degree murder are eligible for the death penalty. Many other countries, however, still look at life without parole as excessive punishment. One legal expert told The Post that the United Kingdom has a very strong civil rights record. However, Relations between the U.S. and U.K. 
are strong when it relates to these kinds of matters. Well, we spoke to a lawyer in New York who specializes in extradition cases, uh, not just between the U.S. and the U.K., but all over, but all over the world. And he said that uh, clearly the United Kingdom and the United States have a long partnership and they have reciprocal agreements and you would you would not want the United Kingdom would not want to keep the United States from prosecuting someone especially in this case a murder charge uh, and so he said that uh, he suspected that this would be worked out in a way that would get Mr. Horn back to Florida because he said that uh, basically it was in no one's interest for this thing to, to drag out. There remains the small possibility that Horn could be released by the judge. She has the authority to do so. There is a possibility, or at least there's an option to the judge, uh, if the judge finds it completely unacceptable, the judge could deny extradition and possibly release, free this person. Now, the lawyer in New York said that if she did that, he would be free only in Northern Ireland and perhaps the United Kingdom, that if he stepped foot in another country, perhaps even Ireland or France, that the United States could then pursue him uh, and try to get 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 that country to extradite him back. Uh, but the lawyer uh, in New York did tell us that he suspected that this is something that would get worked out. Meanwhile, the victim's mother, Pat Walsh, remains frustrated that the second of her son's two accused killers remains in Ireland. Kleinberg told me she takes no solace in the fact that he's behind bars. She believes he still has to face a judge and be punished for what he did. Mrs. Walsh told The Post in a recent interview that she would even fly to Northern Ireland and talk to the judge herself if she thought it would do any good. Coming up, the story of an arrest of a man accused of killing his ex-girlfriend nearly two years ago and burying her in a shallow grave. My special guest for that segment will be Volusia County Sheriff's Detective Seth Amrine and Sergeant A.J. Paglieri. It's just another one of those tragic cases of, of a domestic, domestic violence that had been present in their relationship between Maria and Orlando uh, over time, and then it just unfortunately ended in tragic circumstances where for whatever reason in October 2016 something happened between the two of them uh, which only Orlando is going to be able to explain and which he's been given the opportunity to explain and uh, has not given any insight to so something happened between the two of them which resulted in Orlando killing her subsequently going to Ormond Beach burying her in a shallow grave and then you know fleeing the area uh, but again, at the end of the day, it's just one of those tragic instances of domestic violence. It happens every day. That was Volusia County Sheriff Sergeant A.J. Paglieri talking about the murder of Maria Marquez Rivera, a 40-year-old woman from Deltona whose remains were found in a shallow grave outside of Ormond Beach in November 2016. Charged in the death was the victim's ex-boyfriend, Orlando Cruz Romero. 
Authorities tracked him down in Puerto Rico, where he was serving a 30-month prison sentence for identity theft charges. Here is Sheriff's Detective Seth Amrine talking to me about the start of the investigation. Basically, from the beginning, due to circumstances, he was stated to have been one of the last people to have seen our victim alive and uh, one of the last people to be with her and communicate with her. And he basically disappeared. And when he disappeared, he disappeared along with a vehicle that our victim had utilized at the time frame. So we didn't have him identified in the beginning because of some other circumstances, which we uh, later found out about a week or so later. But uh, he was basically who we jumped on in the beginning. And uh, it it worked out that it was actually um, Orlando Cruz Romero. Investigators think Cruz Romero killed his estranged girlfriend, a woman he had repeatedly abused, during an altercation at her home sometime after 11.30 p.m. on October 3rd, 2016. Detectives allege that Cruz Romero drove the woman's body to a wooded area off Interstate 95 and US-1 near Ormond Beach and buried her in a shallow grave. The reason he chose that spot is still a mystery to Amrine and others who are familiar with the case. We don't know, to be honest. We, we don't know why he picked that spot. We don't know if that was a place he uh, had stopped earlier, if it was just something he figured if he, if he was stopping at a gas station or somewhere in the area that he just saw a good spot. We don't know. We don't know why he chose to, uh, to take her from the scene. We don't know those things, and absolutely he won't tell us up until now. He, he still refuses to, uh, to give us that information. Paglieri told me that Cruz Romero has been tight-lipped all along. Whenever he has decided to talk to authorities, he has denied any involvement in Marquez Rivera's death. So he actually just gave a denial. He's, uh, he, has, he claimed to have no, uh, no involvement at all whatsoever, and... and doesn't know what happened to to Maria, and just very very evasive uh, as to his timeline and his whereabouts and his actions and, and so on and so forth. Cruz Romero and Marquez Rivera had a three-year-old son. Deputies said the boy was at the house the night his mother was killed. A sheriff's spokesman told the News Journal that Cruz Romero dropped the child off at a relative's house sometime before taking Marquez Rivera's body to the woods near Ormond Beach. Here again is Detective Amrine. Well, the son was three at the time, and um, he's primarily a Spanish speaker. We we attempted an interview with him uh, at, during the initial time frame of this whole thing, and I, I think due to the traumatic nature of what he may have witnessed, he wasn't able to, to really disclose anything to us. Uh, statements have been made during the uh, during the course of this investigation. Can't really go into too much detail about that, but um, as far as a great detail about what what was witnessed, we, we really don't have a whole lot. But we do have some statements that he made to uh, family and some other people that he disclosed. As I mentioned, the slaying happened October 3rd, 2016. 53 days later, the day after Thanksgiving, a hunter discovered the victim's remains. Right, it was roughly seven, seven and a half weeks later after her disappearance when uh, the remains were discovered. And due to the climate in Florida, um, the humidity, the sun, and then the back and forth between those two elements, um, decomposition is, uh, is rapid. 
So that's that's why the state of decomposition was so uh, extreme at that point. Amrine told me that wildlife likely brought the bones to the surface, and that's how they became so easy to spot. The investigation began as a missing persons case on October 4, 2016. That's when Marquez Rivera's daughter reported her mother's disappearance. Right from the start, detectives heard from loved ones that Cruz Romero was with her. Detectives also found out that Cruz Romero had a history of violence against his ex-girlfriend. Amrine told me that Cruz Romero also served 20 years in a Puerto Rican prison for a homicide he committed there. He also was wanted in Puerto Rico for violating his probation. A search warrant was conducted at Marquez Rivera's home on Doraca Drive in Deltona and deputies found small amounts of blood inside and outside. There was evidence that someone had tried to clean up the crime scene. Eight days after the murder, the victim's Chevrolet Impala was found in a parking lot in Essex County, New Jersey. Inside the truck, detectives found more DNA evidence. Nineteen days after the murder, Cruz Romero turned up in a hospital in Detroit, He was being hospitalized for complications from diabetes. He was interviewed, but detectives said he denied having anything to do with Marquez Rivera's disappearance. At that time, detectives were still treating it as a missing persons case. Cruz Romero was arrested after being discharged from the hospital. U.S. Marshals took him in for violating his probation, as well as the theft of the Impala. Evidence of identity theft was uncovered, and that's what led to his 30-month sentence in Puerto Rico. Amrine told me that the multi-jurisdictional case mostly went along smoothly. We actually had some uh, really good help uh, that we received from our federal contacts through the Social Security Administration uh, down in Puerto Rico. They basically... Were our, uh, they were like our liaison down there, and uh, they facilitated a lot of the, the work um, with the Justicia Department down there in uh, San Juan, Puerto Rico, and uh, dealing with the officials, you know, in country. But um, no, it went pretty smooth because of the help, like I said, from our federal contacts. So we didn't have much of an issue. Uh, there was a language barrier. I'm not uh, a fluent Spanish speaker. But uh, the agent that we had um, assisting us with the investigation, he was he was uh, originally from Puerto Rico, actually, before he became a federal agent. So he was able to facilitate the communication and the translations for us. An autopsy revealed that Marquez Rivera's manner of death was homicide, caused by homicidal violence. Coming up, the story of the killing of Brian Sweat a 40-year-old Gainesville man who was stabbed to death in his front yard. My special guest for that segment will include Gainesville Police Detective Martin Honeycutt and Captain Mike Shentrup. Okay, 
40-year-old Brian Sweat was clinging to life when he made that call, and he was losing his grip. He was able to give a general description of his attacker and tell the operator that he had been stabbed multiple times in the abdomen. Soon after that, he stopped talking. The operator stayed on the phone with him for a total of six minutes, which was how long it took for first responders to arrive on the scene. During the final four minutes of the call, only one person was talking, the operator. Brian had gone silent. The Gainesville police detective assigned to the case was Mike Shentrup, who is now a captain with the agency. He spoke to me at length about the still-open investigation last week. Brian called 911 advising he had uh, had contact with somebody in his front yard who had stabbed him. He gave a description over the phone. That's the only description we've ever had of the suspect. Ultimately, it's a very tragic 911 call. He was bleeding very profusely and eventually bled out before we were able to get to him. Uh, He was transported to the hospital, but he died basically on scene. They were not able to revive him when they transported him to the hospital. Here is more from that harrowing 911 call, which was made around 2.30 p.m. on June 27, 2005. Okay, where is the person that stabbed you at? He ran away. Do you know who this is? No. You don't know who this is? No. Do you know why he stabbed you? He was trying to rob me or something. Please hurry. I don't know how bad I'm hurt. I'm getting you some help, okay? Which way did he run? He ran away. I'll tell the people when they get here. Was he black, white, Hispanic? He was black. Do you remember what he was wearing? Jeans and a blue shirt, long sleeve. I'm bleeding pretty good. I'm going to get you some help, okay? Just stay on line with me. No one other than Brian saw the attacker. Police canvassed the area, but no one saw anyone suspicious before or after the stabbing. There were no witnesses to the case who ever saw the suspect running from the scene or walking to the scene. There were some people who may have seen somebody hours earlier or hours later, but nobody at that moment within minutes of the incident saw anybody in that neighborhood. Brian told the operator he was stabbed in the abdomen. Police will not disclose how many times he was stabbed, but Brian told the operator he was stabbed more than once. Okay, did he only stab you once or more? No, multiple times. I'm getting lightheaded. Okay, and when did this happen? About five minutes ago. Okay, I'm getting you some help to stay on the line with me, okay? It was then that he started to fade. He suspected he had a lacerated liver and that his internal injuries were too severe for survival. His last words to the operator were, I'm going to die. The 911 operator kept talking to him, urging him to talk and remain awake. She kept doing that until police showed up. At the end of the 911 call, you can hear police enter the house. Anybody here in the house with you? Where's, is there anybody here in the house with you? 
Brian's two dogs, a pair of Cocker Spaniel mixes, were covered in blood when first responders arrived. Here is Captain Shentrup talking about what likely happened from the moment before Brian was stabbed to the time he crawled back inside his house to call 911. The speculation behind the case is Brian must have seen somebody in his yard, somebody he didn't recognize, with the idea that he was going to go out with his handset and dial 911 if necessary if he thought this, this person was doing something illegal. Brian never had a chance to make that phone call to 911 from that initial handset he had in his hand because the confrontation must have taken place and he was stabbed by the by the assailant. Once he was stabbed, the assailant ran in an unknown direction and um, Brian was able to make it back into his house and find a second handset to that same wireless phone system he had to make a phone call to 911. When the victim walked outside of the house, he had a cordless phone in his hand. He was attacked before he had a chance to use it. It got knocked out of his hand, and because he was so disoriented and panicked after the stabbing, his instinct was to crawl back into the house and grab the other receiver to call police. At the scene, we found very uh, little evidence of what occurred. He had um, portable phones. One of the handsets was found in the front yard with a little bit of blood. So we believe the confrontation with the, uh, the suspect occurred in the front yard. Brian was able to make it back into his house, retrieve a second handset from that phone system he had to dial 911. And that phone, that portable phone handset was found next to him with an open line to 911 when we arrived. The Gainesville Sun reported that Brian's Toyota MR2 Spider was parked in his driveway when he died. Police would later say that might have attracted a potential burglar. But the car was not broken into, and none of the victim's possessions was missing when police searched the premises. Our guess is that the assailant never had any intention of killing anybody. He just not, did not want the law enforcement called, and I think Brian probably threatened to call 911, and that's when he was attacked. Brian was the youngest of four children. He grew up in Gainesville and graduated from Gainesville High. He was always an introverted person, but like many introverts, he had many talents. Last week, I spoke to Brian's oldest sister, Brenda Sigmund. He sang in the choir at his high school. He was a very good singer. He was great in music. He played the guitar. He was one of the people that could just pick up an instrument and just play it without ever being taught. Brian had a flair for computers and trivia. Sigmund told me she remembered many nights when he would sit in the living room with her father and the two would watch Jeopardy together. Brian was particularly good at that game. After high school, Brian opted not to go to college and took a lucrative job in upstate New York instead. It was there that he first entered the IT field. He eventually found his way back to Florida when he accepted a job with Bank of America in Jacksonville. In 2004, he got laid off from that job. It wasn't long after his mother had been diagnosed with cancer. Brian moved back in with his mother and lived with her until she died in October of that year. He had lost his father a couple years earlier. Brian found himself living alone in the very house he was raised in. 
he was kind of depressed for a while, I, I think, because of the death of both my parents. Um, he inherited my mom's two dogs, which he dearly loved. And right before he was killed, it seemed like he was back to his old self. He wasn't really that depressed. It seemed like he was getting out, walking, the, taking the dogs for long walks, had gotten back into golfing, uh, loved the gators. Brian Sweat was not a troublemaker. He played online poker. He had only one close friend. He didn't get out much. His murder could not have been more random. Here is Gainesville Police Detective Martin Honeycutt, who handles the agency's cold cases. Sometimes in this business we see victims that are involved in a lifestyle that's risky and, and behavior that's risky and that brings about their demise. And, you know, in law enforcement, you, you know, you don't really necessarily marvel at those kinds of cases. But, you know, with, with Mr. Sweat here, you know, on all appearances, it, he was an honest, uh, upright uh, citizen in the, in the city of Gainesville. And from what we can determine, minding his own business at the time when he was confronted and assaulted. And those are, you know, exceptional for us in that we want to, um, all of them are important, like you said, but, you know, when it's involving a, a, a true innocent victim, they're, um, you know, they're just a little, you know, they're up there in the, on the, the scale, if you will. Sigmund said police did check to see whether her brother's killing was drug-related. It didn't take long for them to become convinced that it wasn't. He had never been uh, stopped for, he might have got a speeding ticket, but he never had anything with the law. He'd never been in any trouble. At first, the police thought it might have been been a drug deal gone bad, but there was no chance in that. I had a bottle of prescription nose spray for allergy, and I had given it to him because he had allergies. Well, he refused to even take it because it wasn't written for him. Mother Nature caused one major setback. Florida's tropical climate means that afternoon showers are very nearly an everyday occurrence during the summer season. Brian was killed during the first week of the summer, so as crime scene analysts were processing the scene, the sky was getting blanketed by storm clouds. But this particular day featured a rainstorm that was even beyond the norm for Florida this time of year. One of the things that hampered our investigation was being uh, summertime here in um, Florida, we experienced a very heavy rainfall uh, within about 45 minutes of arriving at the scene. It was a a heavy, heavy monsoon type rain that we experienced in here in Florida in the summertime in the afternoon. I'm not sure we tried our best to, to, to collect as much evidence as we could prior to that, but knowing that the initial scene occurred outside, it's possible it did cost us some evidence. You know, we'll never know, but it was, uh, it was unfortunate the rain really came down, not just for five or ten minutes. It was about 30 solid minutes, probably an inch of rain or more. Brian lived at 4024 Southwest 38th Street. The home is a short walking distance from Archer Road and Interstate 75. At the time of the killing, Brian's property was adjacent to a motel. Migrant workers would often live there while they worked in the nearby farms. Here is Captain Shentrup talking more about that. At the time, 
he lived in a very secluded neighborhood within the city limits. Um, not secluded because it was fancy, just the way it was designed. But it did his house backed up to a what you would call a low-end motel where lots of um, migrant workers and at, at that time they were watermelon pickers were living uh, in a lot of those hotels behind there. So, of course, initially, we did a lot of canvassing of those hotels to see who was there and what type of criminal histories they had and stuff like that. But we were never able to connect the dots. The only thing separating Brian's property from the seedy motel property was a six-foot-high concrete wall. In the end, police hope someone hears something and comes forward with some information, maybe a jail informant or a confidant of the killer. It seems likely, according to Shentrup, that Brian's killer was not from Gainesville. Having worked hours and hours and hours on the case, we believe that the person who did this to Brian um, was from out of town and came probably came off the interstate and was looking for a place to break into or find a little money and was from out of town and went just left town as soon as it occurred. So a lot of cases we saw after the fact, our cold case clearances, come from locals who eventually decide they want to come forward or get a clean conscience or talk to somebody else while they're in jail. For Brian's case, unfortunately, we have not had any of that. Very, very little chatter locally regarding Brian's case, which has made it very difficult. Tips have not been coming in, according to Detective Honeycutt. Well, as to the tips, we haven't had any recent tips that have uh, turned into any viable leads for us. I don't know of any prior to, say, three or four years ago, but I don't believe so. Of course, we follow up with anything that would come in to its logical end. And certainly, you know, it goes without saying, we always hope, you know, we don't ever give up hope that tomorrow will bring us, you know, some bit of information that opens the door into the next room where, you know, where the evidence lies that we need to, to bring a charge against somebody. So at this point, it's, you know, it's, it's, there's nothing new developing in the case. But of course, we always look and listen and willing to talk to anybody that would come forward with information. Gainesville police have 29 cold cases they are actively working. The oldest such case dates back to 1974. Gainesville is the home of the University of Florida. Its police department has more than 300 sworn officers. Much like Daytona Beach, Gainesville is a mid-sized city with a crime profile of a larger city. It is a hub for eight surrounding counties. People go there to work, attend school, shop, and bar hop. Brian Sweat's murder, however, was the first homicide Gainesville police had in 2005. A lot of work has been put into the case, but clues have been scarce. What little blood that was found in the front yard could only be linked to the victim. The phone receiver lying in the yard has been sent off to labs in the hopes that DNA could be found on it. Those efforts came up empty. Brian's best friend was interviewed by the Gainesville Sun 13 years ago. He said detectives were, quote, pretty much stumped, dead in the water. He was skeptical even then that the case would ever be solved. Brenda Sigmund, by way of comparison, has more hope. She told me she remains optimistic that something will break. 
She said she received some encouraging news recently from one detective. She declined to go into detail about that. In the end, Brian Sweat, who could be described as a determined loner, who lived a life without making any enemies or committing any glaring mistakes, wound up being slain for no apparent reason. I spoke to his sister about that sobering aspect of the case. Obviously, that that may compound your agony because he spent his whole life not bothering anybody. And, not bothering anybody at all, yeah. And and somebody invades his home and, and kills him. That must have been a hard one to accept. It was very hard. And just, I mean, I can't even imagine what the, the reason was. Anyone with information about the slang of Brian Sweat is urged to call Detective Martin Honeycutt at 352-393-7615. That number again is 352-393-7615. Thank you for listening. Tune in next week when I'll discuss the murders committed by Thomas Knight, who gunned down a Miami couple 44 years ago, escaped from jail, committed another murder in Georgia, and years later, fatally stabbed a prison guard while on death row. He wound up getting executed in 2014. So please join us next week. You can find Tony on Twitter at Tony Crime Writer or email him at tony.holt at news-jrnl.com. Be sure to rate us on iTunes. Sun Crime State is recorded by Tony Holt and produced by Chris Bridges for the Daytona Beach News Journal.